Perfect. All right. Well, welcome back for uh, episode three of the Design Company podcast. Uh, so today is a topic that I think we're really going to enjoy talking about. It's uh, customer and user experience. Um, and really in a holistic sense. I know this thing you've been working a lot on, Jason. I mean, you're already an expert in this area. Um, so what I'd like to do today is basically ask you a bunch of questions about customer user experience through the framework of design company and then figure out, okay, you know, how can we approach this in a holistic sense? And in this 2020 world we're living in, what does modern customer and user experience look like? And I am differentiating those two things because they are separate, but they ultimately tie together elegantly. Yes. Sound good? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I can talk about this until cows come <laughs> home, but let's, let's see if we can synth it down into some useful, at least, sound bites. Uh, and we can, and we will. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, without further ado, you know, first area of the design company, purpose. So what would you define as the purpose of customer experience? So I think it's... It's important to first differentiate between customer experience and user experience uh, because user experience is really to do with, in purest sense of definition, interactions between people and things, specifically mm -hmm. in digital realm. And then customer experience is dealing with interactions between customers who are usually paying people so they've already the parting way with cash most uh, social media for example have got users who are not paying customer is paying and so customer experience is for paying people as well as across multiple channels okay mm. so the, the purpose of customer experience in some sort of purest sense, although there isn't really kind of pure definitions, you like most of the time people will go around saying, what does customer experience mean to you? You know, so there's like kind of these floating definitions everywhere. But in the purest sense, it would be that customer experience in design company is the experience of the overall company for its customers, <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay, so you, in, in a nutshell, it's really holistic, you know, it's whether I'm dealing with the support, whether I'm interacting with the product, whether I'm even seeing ads online that are retargeting me. So one question I have then, would you say that user experience can be seen as a subset of customer experience? That's, again, a purist way of defining that, Purist meaning that's how sort of academia would look at it mm. uh, because they would say like most of the time in most companies you would you would see this situation uh, where um, um, you you basically have customer experience professionals are in a position where they're more important than the user experience professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, Having said that, it's the situation that in most companies nowadays, you have users first before you have customers. Mm. So you could say that use, depending on the business model, 
user experience is more important. It's like the, the bigger circle that encompasses customer experience because customers are a subset of the user base. Yes, okay. I see what you mean. So, so the purest definition would be user experience is a subset of customer experience. But when you contemplate about this, you realize that customer experience is a subset of user experience because you can't have customers before they are users. So even if you're thinking of a shop, let's say a shop selling kebabs, I usually try to reduce it down to a kebab shop level, okay? Good example. A kebab shop first has users who would be people that are walking past the shop and they might come in and they're like, oh, do I feel like having a kebab? Now, if you're again the falafel in a, in a, in a market, like a street market in London, what you'll see, what they do is there passes by, the falafel guy gives you a free falafel. The reason for that is because he's trying to convert you from a user to a customer. Mm. He knows that he has to give you that free download <laughs> mm -hmm. to, to taste his product, to actually experience the product, mm -hmm. to then commit the money towards actually having a meal. Okay. So in that sense, user experience first, customer experience as a subset. Because a lot of those people yeah. will eat one falafel and just say, I don't want the, the meal. Yeah. Okay. Okay, interesting. Yes. So, I mean, especially, you know, in a world that is kind of digital and attention driven, in essence, the first touch point is the user experience. Um, if we assimilate that mm -hmm. to the user interface and then, you know, customer experience comes later with all the additional set of channels that we can provide for a paying customer to interact with us as well as the way that we support them. Okay. So in that case, we need to differentiate between both. So, so in that case, I would ask you then, because I kind of get now where you're going with the purpose, which, what are the people, so the secondary design company framework, what are the people involved in both user experience and customer experience and are there any differences between those? Yeah. So this is where uh, someone like Jeff Bezos gets it right in the sense that employees come before customers because mm -hmm. you cannot, going back to the falafel shop example, unless somebody is cooking and making and offering that free falafel up front, mm -hmm. you simply cannot, by definition, have any customer experience because somebody has to cook the falafel, serve it up, and, and, and present it to the customer. Yeah. So, or even the user, okay? So you can't even have users without employees. And so uh, somebody who's got logical enough mind will understand that it is the employees who are the creators of user and customer experience. And they come before the customer because they are required before the customer. It's like you can't really have a restaurant without first baking some bread, whatever, right? So, um, but most, most businesses have it the, the other way around, which mm. is working from the outside in uh, or, or backwards where they're making a product first and then saying, we will get the customers later. Uh, 
the, the, the more skillful thing to do is to, is to think about what is it that the customers want and design that upfront based on actual facts and have that rightly uh, conceptualized before actually committing to building stuff that you don't actually know whether the customer really wants. Yeah, so in essence, we talk about customer experience. I mean, before even talking about websites, apps, you know, priority support numbers, it's think about the human side and in essence, figure out what's really going on here because that fundamental human knowledge will power the experience. And I think the second powerful point you're making here is it is about having the right people internally because ultimately those people are representing your brand. Those people are delivering the experience. Even if it is software, they're still either building the software or supporting the software or making the falafel. And so if those people aren't taken care of, then all the rest of the experience suffers, however beautiful your website is. Mm. Yeah. And so, so what, what is an interesting thing here to, to recognize also is that it isn't just, and this is why the design company model is the way it is. Yes, it's people, purpose and people first. But as soon as you check those two off, you are then saying, well, actually, eventually there comes a falafel, which isn't the people, it's the product. Mm. Right? But, but even before we get to the product, there is the actual process of making the falafel, which is the system. Well, talking about systems then, that dovetails nicely. So, so what is the role of systems in customer and user experience then? Basically, systems enable the customer experience to be delivered to the customer or the user. Uh, okay. And, and, and without the system, you simply won't have that delivery mechanism. Uh, and so it can, that can also become a situation where the system... Uh, is also a product. In fact, every product is a form of a system. So mm. there is a system to the smartphone. There is a system to uh, the way a coffee is consumed. This is why sometimes like someone like Elon Musk would say, it doesn't help me to think of everything as a system because even my dog is a system. Well, yes. <laughs> and so these are kind of layers that build on top from purpose because even a dog has some sort of purpose for existing mm -hmm. and in terms of the people side of things the dog is a certain kind of a person so to speak yeah right? uh, so, so or a living thing right so then the system through which it works and operates is is a certain set because the dog does what the dog does and a cat is distinct distinct in some ways even though it also has four uh, legs and so on. Um, so this is where uh, the way we, for example, drink coffee or drink tea is usually quite a different system or a different process. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and even within the realm of teas, right, people say, oh, the way you drink the mint tea isn't quite the same way that you drink um, some sort of English tea. Sorry. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. So there's, there's lots of systems uh, that go along with every sort of proposition that's made. And you, you'll probably experience this in software engineering where people sometimes tend to come, come 
to you as an engineer or whatever. And they just say, oh, I just want this little thing here. Let's say people want to log their push-ups. And it's like, all I need to do is log some push-ups, uh, log the workouts that I've done. It's like, okay, well, if you just log the workouts, then you're just going to end up with a database full of workout logs. But that's useless to you because you eventually want to see how well you're doing. Mm. So then that requires some sort of dashboard, some sort of retrieval of information, some sort of processing. It's a, now you're into systems. <laughs> it's not just anything. Uh, I, think, I think one thing you mentioned there about systems as well, it kind of echoes what we were discussing last time when we discussed laws, regulation, the rules that you put into place. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of companies, you know, uh, when we're talking about customer experience, um, where systems pr are primed over people. Whereas what, what we just said is before mm -hmm. anything else is customer experience, it's all about yeah. the people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every one of us listening to this, you and I on this call, have had that experience on the phone with the customer support one day where we're making a very simple request that should be sorted out, but the system is broken because there's no individual power and ability to solve problems. So we're transferred through four departments to then be told, well, you've got to go through X channel to actually solve this. Um, so, so I think in that respect, um, again, having a purpose of what is happening when this, what is the purpose of the customer who is contacting me? And then how can we put in the pace of people who will run the system that will solve this problem? Um, and so in that respect, I think it's very easy to fall into a systematic customer experience process that doesn't actually deliver results. And it, you take the opposite example, uh, Zappos. Uh, so what do they do? They sell shoes. Shoes is one of the most commoditized businesses in the world. But what makes Zappos so different is that the system comes after the people because their people are empowered to refund shoes, uh, you know, take decisions. Anything that's below $100, they can take that decision without any further approval. And that sounds like a short-term cost, but the long-term return on investment of actually empowering your people and having a baseline system, but allowing them to make rules on the fly within the context of those rules and values, that's what creates a powerful customer experience. Yeah, exactly. And actually, in many respects, what we've had is... You, you, you have this situation where many companies, and they've been successful companies in many cases, have been product-centric companies. Mm. And they, they've focused on the product as the core thing. I mean, if you watch like, uh, programs like uh, Dragon's Den, mm. they, they'll often go like, show me your product. Like, I have to like the product, okay? And so, so they, they kind of focus in on the product first. But then what you see is, is they'll roll back to go, now talk to me about yourself, right? Mm -hmm. How much do you actually know the market? This is a misleading thing. When they're talking about how much do you know the market, most of the time they're talking really about how much you know the customer, really, mm. okay? because the customer is giving the money to the business. But the market is this sort of compound world, word that it includes transactions of money, supply, demand, blah, blah, blah. But really, it's like, what do people want? And what, do people, what, what are people willing to pay money towards, which is converting from users to customers, okay? Going back to the beginning of this talk. So, so the way they should run the Dragon's Den, really, is to go, 
what's your purpose for being here? And they go, our purpose is to serve people with great falafel. Okay, who are you? Uh, well, I'm a falafel maker who has been making falafel 25 years and my falafel is the tastiest falafel ever. Okay, why is that? How's that work? Well, my falafel gets made with the freshest ingredients picked by me by hand. Okay, what's innovative? Innovation is that it tastes like no other falafel. It's just unique taste. Okay, show me the product now. <laughs> okay, yes. that's where you get to the product bit. As opposed to show me the product and then reverse engineer into the mm. people. Okay, <laughs> but so we've had history in the modern days, in the last, let's say, maybe 100 years, the companies have been focused on systems and products, mm. and they've been priding themselves in the systems and products. And that's created a civilization of non-user-centric products and pollution, yeah, frankly speaking, because most of these products are not really serving true human needs because we totally. skip the people <laughs> and the purpose i mean you know i mean uh, you and i you and i don't live in the us you know we're european but if you look i mean what's happening in silicon valley how many of these startups are you know coming up that literally basically only have as a customer base uh, engineers making 200k plus in san francisco market you know, uh, it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so it, in that respect, I think having a clear purpose behind why you're doing something, and I actually really liked what you just said about uh, a Dragon's Den pitch and design company framework. Uh, BBC, if you're listening, you should probably take this on board. Um, <laughs> but what well, I like- Well, I mean, actually, we will be just as a side note, a flat news flash here. That's really what Integral Incubator will be. It's gonna be like a virtual version of a dragon's den as it should be, like purpose-led dragon's den, where we will be you know, getting startups to pitch themselves through this process, and it will make, like when it makes sense, it will make a purposeful sense. Yeah? I mean, as, as one famous VC said, I would rather invest in A team with a B idea than a B team with an A idea, because the right people can yeah, always iterate, exactly but the wrong people will just execute terribly. And that is the reality of life. Um, so talking about that then, so what do you see today? I mean, it's 2020, you know, we're living basically in the future now, so that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. What does innovation look like in customer and user experience areas? Okay, so that, uh, this is probably going to be a very controversial um, thing to say, but it makes sense. It's focused a lot more on reducing reducing down whereas mm. let's say in the last decade it was about let's make this app let's make that app let's make this system let's make that system now it's really a lot about reducing what are the things that we can take out because a lot of the stuff has become legacy and that legacy is just holding back on everything else slowing it down weighing it down etc now that process of reducing it down is a bit like cutting off an appendix. Mm. Um, there is an element of actually still analysis, understanding, working out whether you know the patient's still going to be alive after mm. this operation. And if if there's loads and loads of appendixes everywhere, 
then you know going through that process is a systemic challenge. Um, now, a company or certainly a corporation, I can imagine that a corporation, I don't want to name any names here, but there, there's a number of them that I've worked with directly, that employs 100,000 people worldwide that has been for 10, 20 years atrophy in terms of the way their systems work. You can imagine that like, it's almost like the entire organization has become metastased as a cancerous outgrowth. Mm. Now, even if it was a product-centric company, skipping purpose people systems innovation, as a product-centric company is failing. Mm -hmm. And now you have to say to them, well, actually, for you to improve your products today, you're going to have to stop you're going to have to forget about the products to start off with. Mm -hmm. You're going to even have to forget about the innovation, even the systems, but roll back to the purpose and people mm. in that order. And then they'll say like, yeah, but we've got all these 100,000 people working for us. They have to do something. And then you go, well, the first thing they should be doing is getting up to speed on what is it that the people want certainly yeah yeah and but then they say like but what's the point of that right that's not like a business activity like we go off and we work out what is it that people want like what is the actual roi of that they can't really connect that because they're not making this connection of people deliver customer experiences through systems and innovative approach which should be serving the people to create products and services that generate money and growth organically, like Google did, like Facebook did. They never did any advertising. I mean, yeah. Sorry, uh, one thing you said that I really liked at the beginning was it's all about cutting things down. So if you look at two mega companies, Instagram and Slack, what is it that made these companies successful? Is that both of them, before they became successful for what they're known, had much larger applications. So. Instagram was a very social application, very big thing. They nailed it down to just sharing photos and it took off. Same thing with Slack. They were a gaming company. Uh, it wasn't really taken off. And then one of the team members realized, hey, uh, one of the modules we built is a pretty good uh, internal chat system. And so instead of like, building 20 times more features, they burned everything to the ground, just kept the chat option. And now you have Slack that is a huge, I believe, a billion unicorn valuation company yeah. uh, that's really well known. And so in that respect, yes, I, I agree with you. Actually, I mean, there's a meme that I've seen a couple times go through, and it's a comparison between Google search and your application. And so Google search is just one bar, and then your application, quote unquote, is yeah. a bar, uh, three drop downs, another selection, a multi-select. Um, and it's, so it's this power actually of saying, um, real valuable products today are actually paradoxically ones that the user doesn't need to use that often. I mean, there's different cases, obviously, you know, some are more for power users, etc. But ideally, the person should only be interacting with the product to get the value they need. And it should not be a badge of honor to be an expert in knowing the 37 submenus of the products. Yes. And so there is an inherent, uh, challenge in there because let's say 
when you get to larger corporations, which an example being Apple okay, mm. uh, or Amazon, because uh, here you've got a stack of products that, and, and most UX designers would just kind of curl up in a corner and not want to think about this. But I like to contemplate about this a lot. Uh, and it's perhaps why I get hired, you know, to, to design systems that actually take reality into account as opposed mm. to, you know, this kind of nebulous little sort of fantastic uh, illusion, right, of what the world is like. But here, here's the challenge. Amazon as a corporation, when we get to the products bit, which most of the people think, oh, as a user experience designer, you are designing the product. It's like, sure, but I still have to understand the purpose of the company, who the people are, both internally and externally, how the system works, how we want to change that system, what are the innovative ideas here that actually make sense, mm -hmm. and then I get to the product to design that product. And most of the time, people think that the product is the UI, the interface, forgetting that, like, I don't know, WhatsApp is just like one interface, but behind it, there's like billion systemic processes that are running to make that happen, that little message. Uh, so so the, the, the simpler the interface, the more complex the backend processes are and vice mm -hmm. versa. And so, and, and the simpler the interface, the less the user needs to do, but the more the system needs to do. Mm -hmm. The simpler the system, more the user needs to do, and they better enjoy that doing because otherwise they won't do it, okay? And so, the complexity here is that Amazon as a corporation has got different products and services that they're offering. I mean, you just thought once you sort of subscribe to Amazon Prime, then you get into all this uh, video, books, subscribe to this, uh, storage, AWS, blah, blah, all these kind of things. So there's like dozens of Amazon products. And then on top of that, they sell millions of products from them and from third-party providers. Mm -hmm. So you start getting into this information architecture that can be crazy, crazy complex. Mm. And then going back to that, depending on how complicated the system or complex the system on the back end is, the simpler the front end. Google is an example of an extremely complex backend system that mm -hmm. presents a very simple input field. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at Amazon actually, what's insane, this is actually a really good demonstration. People often confuse user experience, customer experience with just UI and the prettiness of your application. Mm -hmm. uh, how many startups with a lovely interface has nobody ever heard of? Whereas if you look at Amazon, it's a huge player in its respective markets. And Amazon, you know, as much as I appreciate your products, the UI is terrible. Like, you yeah. Know, I <laughs> okay. so, so this is a very important point, actually. You bring this up very organically as serendipitous. Because one of the guys I, I coached and mentored, uh, he, he started um, UK, his UK UX design career literally not speaking English. He came into an interview, I always can tell the story as a bit of an anecdote. He came into an interview with an English dictionary. He came from Spain, it was three months in UK. Came from Spain with an English dictionary to an interview. And I thought it was a joke. So I kind of just put aside all the kind of prepared questions that I had for him. And we just kind of had a chat. And I realized in this guy, 
that he was kind of like a diehard, his attitude was like, I'm willing to die for UX design, something like that. And I realized that. And I, I said to the company where, where I was working, I said, I, I'd hire this guy because he's got certain attitude, even though he can't speak English, but we have to tell him that he's got to learn English as he onboards himself into UX design. That guy today is working at Amazon as a UX designer, okay? And so sometimes I catch up with him and we speak about this and we would say, oh yeah, um, Amazon has got great customer experience, but not very good user experience, right? So in mm. that sense, the customer experience trumps the user experience because another example is eBay, you know, where mm. people will bid for all sorts of things on eBay, irrespective of what the interface is. That's how much people are after bidding and stuff, okay? Well, I think what's interesting there, so, so in that case, what's quite subtle then is the balance between user experience vs customer experience. And I think, you know, with regards to something like Amazon, where you are selling very commoditized services, either physical products or computing time, uh, the differentiation there is not so much the UI as it is really serving customers really well. And Amazon is very well known. Yeah. Um, for this, I mean, you know, there's that case that everybody knows where the customer starts speaking to the uh, support rep uh, as a Viking, and the support rep responds, responds in kind uh, in a role play that lasts through the entire 45 minutes of conversation. So yeah. that's very powerful. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, I think if you're looking at more products where it's less of a commodity, so I'm thinking, for example, SaaS businesses, mm -hmm. um, there is a much higher standard of user experience, at least for the acquisition phase. Um, and then in terms of retention, well, that's where customer experience comes in. Feel free to disagree, but... Okay, this so, so th this is what I've, what I've discovered over 15 years working on these things. Mm -hmm. You have a situation where sometimes certain businesses are in so much demand. Mm. Like right now, there's a coronavirus outbreak and there's such a demand of toilet paper and masks that if you just put out any crappy old toilet paper, people still buy it, mm. okay? So demand outweighs supply so much that any crappy thing will do, pun intended on the toilet paper. <laughs> uh, but as soon as the demand drops, now you're in a value proposition territory again, mm. okay? So what I've, what I've done, uh, and a great example of this has been a company called Bright Talk that I worked with, uh, where they had a demand for this um, uh, professional webinars, right, as a platform. And they were mm -hmm. doing really well. In my opinion, they were doing really well considering that up until that point, they never heard of that, okay? Mm -hmm. Because they built the niche and it was kind of very well focused on provide, serving that niche. Uh, and then, so they were, but they were flatlining. They, they were sort of doing about 10 million uh, revenue per year or, or wanting to do 10 million per year. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really consider, UX, UX was an unknown term to them. It was mm -hmm. just like, we have to have this interface for people to see the webinar. That was it. And I came in, I worked with them, it took two years to, to redesign the whole platform. But it went from this kind of old school 90s looking thing that was just really kind of ugly to look at and 
ugly processes to go through in order to view that webinar. It became like a sleek, sexy kind of experience, both on the back end and the, on the front end. Mm -hmm. Bright Talk is now one of the fastest growing media companies in, in uh, Silicon Valley, edging towards a unicorn exit with almost 100 million revenue per year, tenfold. What's happening is that even though they were in demand enough, and even though they were doing good business with a sort of crappy UI, once you put a really sexy UI and stuff that worked across mobile, desktop, tablets, all that kind of stuff, suddenly the demand went up because people are just much more uh, frictionlessly interacting with the thing. They realized that the demand was actually much higher than, than uh, what they perceived it to be. Uh, so because people only put up with certain amount of friction to get to the product. Yeah? Yeah, so I mean, unless I think what we're saying here is, you know, ultimately, as you said, I like the distinction you made between paying customer and really customer experience and focusing on that and the user experience because, you know, physical businesses, non-digital don't survive if they don't get paid. So I yep. think that's quite a good paradigm to bring into the digital world. Um, but yeah, so essentially what you're saying is there may be a certain market in the customer experience side of things, a certain amount of demand. And so the role of user experience is to frictionlessly bring the person into that customer experience and really redu uh, reduce the barriers to adoption and barriers to entry for a prospective user. Exactly. And so if you, if you draw parallels between, for example, let's say in hotel industry and in hospitality industry, this is very well kind of engraved into um, ethos of businesses where you know you'll be looked after in a hotel everyone will be polite they'll go through certain processes um, take your bags uh, maybe there'll be like white glove service and so on but in most cases when you're going into a hotel somebody like let's say the doorman you know, as you've just gone through the hotel they they do psycho profiling on you based on just looking at you they know about what you're wearing, what kind of car you're coming out of, how many bags you're carrying, who you are, whether you're male, female, older, younger, uh, perhaps what language you're speaking. They already have loads of information on you to maybe say uh, bonjour, right? Versus good afternoon or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Immediately by saying bonjour, they are providing certain customer experience there. Yeah. But a user experience designer will have to serve somebody that they don't know what they look like, who they are, how old they are, where they're coming from, what they're wearing, nothing, and still present something of like experiential value on the first hit. Yeah? Interesting. So I, and, I and, and, if, and if, if that person has been presented with something completely irrelevant, they mm. will once and for all go somewhere else. Because so <laughs> you only get one chance to make the first impression. Of okay. course. So I think then that really, what you're saying here, I think is a very deep and powerful explanation of when people say, find your niche, you know, mm -hmm. in essence, what they're really saying is, you know, find a way to say something that resonates to people who share the same preoccupations, you know, yes. whether they're men, women, old, it's not so much about these individual characteristics that 
might occur in the customer stage, but as human beings, what are their common preoccupations? And so um, I think in that case, it's very rare, but I think that's what we've managed to do in our case with design company software, is having something that is universal, that most humans can actually find themselves um, engaging with, responding with, having an emotional response with. And so find your niche is good advice, but in some cases, you don't always need a niche. So basically, uh, find your niche is a, is a double-edged sword. Just like doing something generic is also a double-edged sword. Yeah. All these things are double-edged swords because ultimately the universe is quite paradoxical that what seem to be the opposite ends of the spectrum can mm. be collapsed into a unified realization. Mm-hmm. But So the find your niche, again, it's kind of like mispitched by management consultants and business advisors who don't actually understand this psychology that I'm explaining here. Mm. That the niche is not, it's not about the niche. It's about this thing that I just said about being able to speak to someone not in the generic is like, uh, hi, <laughs> instead of saying hi, which is not an experiential thing. You could say, if your quote unquote niche is user experience designers, then you can already kind of pre-assume and pre-assess uh, and pre-discover and know that UX designers appreciate design. They maybe have an eye for detail. They're interested in systems and business and technology. Uh, they, they're wanting to use lots of different tools. They're looking at different apps and so on. They want to have a certain career where they impact businesses and, and, and so on and so on. So there's lots of potential hooks to speak to them at a lot more personal level than just hi. Mm. Yeah. And so um, this, is, this, is the, this is the reason why niches exist. But if you define your niche badly, which is that you misunderstand the customer, then you will be putting off a lot of very legitimate money uh, loaded customers okay potential customers by greeting them in the wrong way <laughs> i mean there's one thing i just want to bounce off of before we move to the money part i said you said something very powerful there about you know uh on one end generic universality of products and on the other end finding your niche and how do we collapse those into two um what i would say the way to solve that is that actually Find your niche needs to be a two-step process. And what's happening is people are actually interpreting it as the second step. And the second step of finding your niche is find the people that belong to that niche. And what I've just realized you know, through this conversation is actually the first step is don't even think about men, women, old, young, Chinese, American, French. Just really go down to the human level, which is what is an actual human need? You know, what is mm-hmm. something really fundamental and that goes back to the purpose originally that can be filled out and then organically once you've figured out that needs well organically then you'll identify okay this is my target niche of people and that could be uh ladies over 40 who own a dog you know yeah or it could be all of humanity pretty much yes and so so um frameworks like jobs to be done, which a lot of people will be familiar with as a kind of like they, they've been pitched as the way to go. Okay. 
because the idea there is that stop talking about the system and how does the system work is just talk to me about what is the customer looking to do here, right? Mm -hmm. As in the customer is, I just want to buy some bananas. That's it, you know. Um, that might be a job to be done, buy bananas. Uh, but you might actually realize there that that's not really what the customer is doing because when you roll that step before that, you realize that the customer is looking to feed their hunger, <laughs> okay? Mm. And, and that hunger, the feeding the hunger is actually in the role of transforming them to become a stronger person, healthier person, all these kind of things, okay, evolve, okay? Mm. And so, so every technology ought to be in the role of helping people transform into a next best version of themselves. And if they're not doing that, what they're then doing is they're destroying future customer base. And actually, most companies today are very well positioned to destroy customer base of the future. <laughs> so, I mean, t talking about destroying your potential future buyers then, uh, you know, what would you say are the roles of money in UX, uh, UX UI customer experience? I mean, we've seen so many startups raise millions, build a sexy app, and then fail. So, you know, how can we really have a modern, respectful, truthful consideration of money in customer experience? So, it, 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 in many respects, you, you see glimpses of this happening now in terms of VC money slowly being realigned towards funding purposeful founders or purposeful ventures, right? Mm. But whereas something like WeWork has raised God knows how many, like trillion dollars, okay? Uh, not that much, but like hundreds of billions to basically create another office space, office location. The true venture capitalist of a WeWork of the future would be funding a purposeful company that would be enabling humans to work from wherever they want, mm -hmm. however they want, and in a happy, blissful, healthy way, especially mentally healthy way. That would be the true we work of the future, as opposed to we just want to land grab all the property in every single city so that wherever you want to get an office space, which you don't actually want. I have not had an office space since I started running my business. Why? Because I didn't need one. My laptop is my office. Mm. Right? So we work is broken by design from the outset because they've gone, our product is the office space. That's not the product. The product is the well-being of the worker that you're serving. And you'll find that WeWork is actually, however much it's pimped out and equipped with all the pizzazz inside, it's actually a very depressing place to work at because it still works in terms of cubicles. So um, this is kind of problem that we're seeing now. And most companies nowadays are like scratching their heads because they're going like, We've provided all the products and all the things to people at workplace and they're suffering from clinical depression. Why? Because all the products have been designed with products as the purpose, 
and that's not it. The purpose is to transform people. So, so my question, in a very pragmatic sense, in the money theme, is you know, let's say I'm a digital company. Uh, you know, I've already got an established team, fifty hundred employees. I'm looking to reinvest in my digital experience, but I don't really know where to go. How do I really go from zero to one in that, or one to ten in that respect? Really make sure the money is well spent and not wasted, but also make sure that it actually generates a return on investment. So. I mean, I'll go to like a terrible, terrible example here, uh, but but there is there is potentially good lessons to be pulled out. Terrible examples. Mm -hmm. um, famously, and and it's not to say that like all the management literature is complete trash. There is some wisdom in management literature. Mm. So in management, they talk about cradle to grave strategies. Mm -hmm. meaning that the company ultimately wants users or customers to buy their products from cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. And then McDonald's famously, it was a Coca-Cola and McDonald's, famously changed that to say cradle to cradle. Okay, So the idea being that the generation that's currently consuming McDonald's would pass it on to the next generation as well. Mm -hmm. So it goes from me being a baby to feeding McDonald's to the next baby that I create, okay? Okay. And that's actually good thinking because we are, as current humans, we are serving the next generation, whether we have children or not, mm -hmm. okay? Because other people's children are also our children because they'll continue using our products and services, blah, blah, blah. So, so we have to be cognizant of that if we're going to create sustainable companies. And so, um, but most companies will say, and this is the downside of the niching, is to say, we are serving this niche of, let's say, 17-year-old uh, boys who are into watching car videos online. If that's your niche, then as soon as that boy becomes 18, he's no longer your customer. What now? Instead, you've got that. That's why there are things like customer lifecycle maps, okay, which will show you and company owners how your customers, at what point they come in to start thinking about consuming your product, mm -hmm. and at which point does they kind of grow out of it, okay? Mm -hmm. So a great, a well-designed company will have products for you know, we spoke about this, about having, you know, entry level, like free, 10 pound, 100 pounds, so on. But more importantly, we'll have products for a seven-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 20-year-old, and so on. If you think about it, Disney is also consumable. Disney stories are written cleverly for both children and adults. Mm. So as a parent, you go to the cinema and you know, this is a fantastic thing to observe every time. I, I, I laugh at this more from a meta perspective. You go to the cinema and you're watching it. Eight-year-old laughs at one point. Thirteen-year-old laughs at another point. When the eight and thirteen-year-olds don't laugh, the parents are in stitches. And the eight and thirteen-year-olds are looking at the parents going, what are they laughing about? And the joke is pitched at that level of uh, maturity, okay? So parents have the life experience of being able to laugh at that joke. 
The point is that that Disney story is cleverly designed for three or four different generations so mm. that everyone can have a laugh, which is the experiential value of that product. So they all come out of the cinema going, yeah, it was worth it. But, <laughs> but the children don't get why parents laughed at certain things. I mean, that's actually very interesting what you said, and not to liken employees to children, uh, but really this idea of one product being able to serve different people uh, in a group in different ways, but still being the same product. So if I think about, you know, for example, selling a software to a business, and this is what I've realized working with you as well, um, you, you don't just have the buyer who's buying the software. You know, you have the employees that are going to make use of that. You have the managers who is going to help in their management. You have the uh, executives and directors who might not be using the software day to day, but also can integrate that into their strategy. And so I think as well, you know, it's all about just getting out of the UI and saying, okay, what is the message we're doing? in a holistic sense, when a group of people uses our product. Um, and I think also you've got to get out of this very narcissistic, I'm just setting to one individual. And also, what is the group of people, you know, what, what interactions and new insights can I enable this group of people to have thanks to this product? So it's going beyond just the value that your own product produces and saying, you know, how can I be the catalyst to that group producing extra value between themselves? So, I mean, there's a example of software, but coming back to the Disney movie, well, everybody had a great experience after the movie. So even if there's older and younger, they can still talk about it, share things about it. Maybe it can even be a learning experience yeah. for parents to transmit knowledge to the children. Exactly. And I mean, further point to Disney is that like many of us have grown up reading comic books, uh, watching cartoons, etc., etc. So actually as adults, then we're still adult children in mm. some respect. So we're actually, I remember first time I was seeing Spider-Man when it came out in cinema, I was 20 plus, 25, whatever. And, you know, it was first time for me seeing Spider-Man for real live on the, on the moving screen. And I was crying because it, it, it was bringing out my childhood imagination into exactly the way I imagined Spider-Man to be. And so as an adult consumer that I was now making my own money and so on, I was now happily spending bigger cash on exactly the same concept as before, just in a different channel. Mm. And uh, so, so you realize that's why these franchises and why Pokemon cards and so on come back and back and back because you're just having this kind of refreshment of generations, right? That are now getting again experientially involved and introduced and reintroduced into the whole uh, universe, right? I mean, it's funny what you said about Pokemon. I remember, you know, the first game I played was, uh, you know, the, the, the first version they brought on Game Boy Color when I was like, you know, not even 10. Uh, and so now, actually, like 15, 20 years later, um, I have friends of mine who are in their 20s and who are buying the latest, the latest versions of Pokemon that are now anywhere actually targeted towards a more adult and mature audience. So, you know, I think also having this mindset of not just being here for the one month sale, but really growing with people throughout their lives. I and mean, you said on that transformational experience, yeah. that, that's the key. So talking about growth then, yeah. um, well, you know, how does growth apply to all of this? How do we actually have customer user experiences that generate growth? Yeah, so, so it, if all of these previous things that we've, we've talked about are done well enough, 
And they don't have to be done exceptionally well. They just need to be done in, in some sort of good enough way. I'd say like good enough is good enough. Yes, just um, remind us, people, uh, purpose, people, systems, innovation, products, money, and now that all dovetails into growth. Exactly. And so uh, I have to make a, an example here uh, of, of a company I worked with, considering that we just mentioned Pokemon and Disney. Uh, but Moshi Monsters, which is a company called Mind Candy, uh, mm -hmm. founded by um, Michael Acton Smith, who is one of the most kind of revered uh, CE startup CEOs in the UK, who's now running Calm app. Okay, so this is a, actually it's the same narrative here. Uh, I almost got hired as a head of design for Moshi Monsters at one mm -hmm. point for, for Mind Candy. And I said, I, I said to them, what's the biggest problem for this company? This was like quite a few years ago. They were at the peak of their success. And they said to me, we have too much money in the bank and we don't know what to do with it. Okay. And I'd realized that the company was, because I've got this kind of knack to walk in and I look around the office and within like an hour, I can scan the psychology of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. what they're focused on the most, okay? If it's a people company or product company or systems company and so on. Um, and I noticed that there was loads and loads of designers in there and they're just basically I would kind of looked around and screens and they're all just designing new characters because they had thought that their product was the characters mm -hmm. because that's really what made them all the money so far. Mm. And I'd known that this company was growing rapidly and there were certain, at the time, like the smartphones and, and, and certainly tablets, smartphones were already kind of taken off quite a bit, uh, but tablets went. And I said, uh, you know, what's the mobile and tablet strategy in this company? They said, oh, you know, we're a flash app. At the time, it was still, you know, flash. Mm. And like flash was installed in every machine and it was like, how you interacted with like high fidelity content uh, online. And they said, oh, you know, we're a flash app and all our kids play, play games on desktop in the flash browser. Mm. They said, that's an issue though, because smartphones already taken off and they're going skyrocketing exponentially and tablets will probably be the gaming console of the future. And I said, no, 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 just like, it's not the thing. And I said, I don't want to be a head of design here unless you can understand this very basic thing that there is a systemic change going on in the humanity, in the civilization. Mm. So they, they, there was rumored that they had about 200 million pounds in the back at the time. Because they were just hitting hit after hit. They were like releasing music album and it was like better pre-orders than madonna's album okay moshi monsters music album was better <laughs> pre-orders on itunes than madonna's album it wasn't even yeah. recorded yet it's crazy then they had this like moshi tv thing uh that i was working on for like two months and that was like just children watching videos about moshi monsters it's like the brand's wet dream you know it's just like they're just watching our advertising for fun right yeah and, and I said, but this is all going to go down unless we're present on smartphones and tablets. And they're like, no, 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 that's not, that's not, what, that's not what we're focused on. We're creating more, more characters and so on. What happened? A few years later, 
Mind Candy, a news comes out. First of all, they fired Michael Acton Smith, removed him by force, because when things started tumbling down, the company didn't disrupt itself at the best time, which is the best time to disrupt. It started tumbling down. They fired Michael Acton Smith. They brought in MBA management layer people <laughs> who institutionalized uh, spreadsheet type management of like looking actually at the money, okay, not yeah. understanding the customer at all and not really caring about the trends. Two, three years later, Mind Candy applies for one million pound loan from a bank to stay afloat. Okay, yeah, that's that's a very powerful story. I don't we really have any. It's comments. the opposite example of what they should have done, which is to actually fully understand the customer, what the customer is really going into more and more, because these things are like crack cocaine. The smartphones are like crack cocaine to everyone, not just children, and the games are being played on those things, like every single manufacturer is like iPads, tablets, uh, smartphones, games. That's it. It's basically a console of today. And uh, they just went present on there. If they became present on there, Mind Candy today would be worth 10 billion pounds. Pounds. Because they would have had a range of other different games. They would have had all the... They had an entire franchise. The franchise was incredible because... During the time when I was at Mind Candy, they would have an email coming in from the legal team saying, today we seized 100 domains that were using Moshi branding in their domain name. We seized it. And so they had the whole IP game sewn down. It was perfect. Children were buying Moshi Monsters underpants, pajamas, bed covers, all sorts of stuff. That could have been worth $10 billion. Michael Acton Smith ended up setting up Calm because he himself on his own personal development journey, because we're all going through that life cycle, he came to realize, I have to calm down. He started having loads of anxiety and, and mental health problems. So he's, he realized he had to calm down. Now, calm.com is worth billion plus, okay? But... <laughs> Yeah, so a couple of good decisions made there along uh, along the way. Um, cool. Well, what I like to do is just like summarize everything we've discussed today. Um, you know, as for the previous time, I think trying to extract like one universal truth from everything we've discussed. So you are the expert in customer user experience, user interface. So if we had to have like one moral, one you know, one thing to retain from what we discussed today, what would that be? The moral of the story is that. Change is the ultimate variable and mm. the customers keep growing through stages. And if you have customers right now, you can imagine that you won't have them tomorrow unless you're catering to their tomorrow self. And uh, most companies don't really understand this and sooner or later they suffer because of it. And customer experience design and user experience design are there to, if they're done properly in a holistic way, that they're there to cater to the customers and users in the best way possible so that they stay with your company throughout their life cycle, cradle to cradle. But that's actually very powerful. I like that. So if I had to reformulate it in my own words, mm -hmm. um, 
it would be essentially, you know, don't just solve transactionally the customer's problem today in a one-off fashion, but, you know, figure out what their challenges are and what you can help them with and be with them on that transformational journey. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this happens, you know, just as another, another example in, in radical situations, uh, which is the automotive industry. Uh, in many respects, company like Tesla is, and to some extent, Uber is building more of a service for life. Okay. Service for life, as opposed to all the other companies, car companies are building a product, a car that is there to kind of satisfy you for two, three years. And then they're betting on the fact that you're going to come back and buy another car in three, four years, which you don't. <laughs> and so, so they never really get, or rarely do they get repeat customers. And then they're just basically killing themselves. And that's why Tesla and Uber are being valued at so much, even though they currently don't have that much actual money coming through. But what they are having is that customer loyalty, love, dedication, and effectively uh, uh, commitment for life to be using this. Because right now, if you, if you ask any person uh, that's experienced Uber, go and phone me a cab, they'll just cringe at the idea. It's like, I don't want to speak to anyone to phone a cab. I just want to press a button and it comes. That's it. You know? mm-hmm. So any company that isn't geared towards that is going to fail. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, you know, if we're talking about and just really to finally put into practice what you said earlier, you know, you said about reducing the barrier to friction to actually solving a problem. I remember when I used to live in London uh, when I was a student, you know, early 2010s. Uh, it feels weird saying 2010s, but, you know, that's living in the future now. Um, I remember, you know, coming out of the student bars some nights, you know, and like calling a cab and waiting around for ages yeah. and just thinking like it, it was magical at the time. Oh, if only I could press a button for a, a, a car to appear out of nowhere. Uh, and then now that's become our reality. Yeah. I mean, like it, yeah, I recently had, had some driver on Uber cancel on me and, um, and, I, and I felt like a small dose of rage, you know. But then, then I was thinking, I remember back in the day, you know, you get a, you phone a cab stand, while stand, getting out of the club back in the 90s even. You phone a cab, they'd tell you they're coming. They wouldn't say when. And you'd stand there for like 20 minutes and then you phone back. And then he would tell you after 20 minutes that he would tell you, oh, like no one's coming to pick you up. <laughs> so you're having to go through the process of reordering another cab, but you never have this up-to-date insight into whether someone's coming, right? So, so my sort of like micro-rage at Uber, which a lot of like post-millennials and millennials experience and they think it's the end of the world, it's like they haven't really experienced pre-tech days where it was just like you, you, you like could catch a pneumonia outside of a club. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thankfully, we live in the modern world, so let us leverage technology for its good uses. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. Let's uh, let's choose an awesome topic, but today's been very insightful, and I'm looking forward to speaking again soon. Thank you very much, my brother. Looking forward to it. Thanks for taking this, and take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.